Unsafe spaces. We have called this sermon series, which has been 15 parts. and We have uh, been studying the book of James, and we've called it unsafe spaces because, as you saw from the sermon bumper, following this man will often, in the culture we live in, will lead you into unsafe spaces. It takes you places uh, that is antithetical against the voices that you hear from the news, uh, from culture, from Hollywood. Nobody is saying what we say in here anymore. The nation used to. Uh, America used to say what the church said. It is not that way any longer. So following this man, this man named Jesus, will uh, take you into some pretty unsafe spaces if you're trying to keep pace with the world. So that's why we called this sermon series uh, Unsafe Spaces. Now, uh, if you missed this series, well, then you missed your big chance because today is the last installment. We're going to finish this book. Uh, we've studied all the way through the book of James. I've preached every scripture in the book of James, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it has challenged you toward a deeper understanding of who this man is and what it means to follow him. James, for those of you that may not have been here throughout this study, was an eyewitness to Jesus' life. And not just his church life, not just Jesus the Messiah. James was Jesus' little brother. He grew up with Jesus. He saw Jesus before Jesus was ever known by the world. Before Jesus' public ministry ever began, James knew Jesus who played in the streets. Maybe they, maybe they slept in bunk beds. We don't know. Uh, maybe they uh, fought when they were little boys and uh, wrestled in the living room. Who, who knows what they did, but James has been a lifelong witness of Jesus' life. And although his book is only five chapters long, he has a lot to teach us about his brother. Last week, I started a two-part sermon, and I'm going to finish it this week. The, 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 the sermon that I started is the church family photo. James introduces to us seven people in this fifth chapter of James that we're going to talk about. Last week, we introduced four members of the family. We talked about happy, ouchy, messy, and weary. Those were the first four. Snow White had her seven dwarfs. We got our seven. And this week, we're going to talk about the other three family members. We're going to meet them. We're going to meet painful. We're going to meet persistent. And last, we're going to meet pester. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I used to think, I've been doing this a long time. I've been preaching this gospel for almost 25 years. I've been a senior pastor over 20 years. And I used to think when I first got started in the small church that I used to, uh, that I cut my teeth in and, and where I got my training from, I used to think, that being spiritual meant something that I no longer believe. I used to think that in order for me to be spiritual-minded and get a sermon ready was I had to get that sermon ready as close to preaching it as possible so I could hear what the Holy Spirit was wanting to say. So I would wait sometimes until 3 o'clock in the morning on Saturday and be up praying and wrestling with the Lord, trying to get a word from heaven, because I believe that in order for me to be in tune with the Holy Ghost, I had to be a right now word. But I've lived long enough to know that it did make me more anxious. It made me more stressed. It probably made me more bald. But it did not make me more spiritual. As a matter of fact, I'm at a stage in my ministry now where I like to try to pre uh, lay my preaching calendar out six months ahead. 
And some people will stop me and ask, well, how do you know that you uh, are, are going to make it relevant to what's going on in the world today? Well, number one, what it took me longer to learn than I wished it would have is the same Holy Ghost that feeds me the sermon already knows what's coming up in the future. Can somebody say amen? So if the Holy Ghost needs, needs me to preach something six months from now, I'm pretty sure he already knows he needs me to preach it six months from now, and he can be preparing my heart for that even though I don't know it's coming. And, and so uh, I, I've been working on this word, and I believe this word is timeless. Can somebody say amen? And, and I believe it's always relevant. Here's what I believe. How, Pastor, how do you make the word relevant to the world we live in? Well, number one, I believe that the word is above the world. And we don't make the word relevant. The word is relevant. No matter if it's 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years from now, this word, the Bible says, you can stand on it when the whole world is burning. So the argument could be made that the world is not relevant, but this word will always be relevant. Because one day the world's going to pass away and burn with fire, but this word will endure forever. So this word will always be relevant no matter what age we preach it in. Somebody say amen. And so, uh, as we find ourselves today in James, it is a perfectly timed message for what we're celebrating, Father's Day. That's what I'm saying. I've pre I prepared this uh, months ago, but it lined up perfectly with Father's Day. So, we're going to talk first about the family of James, okay? Uh, now, mom and dad is Mary and Joseph, and they had a baby named Jesus. That's... That's a pretty good kid. When Jesus is your firstborn, you're doing all right. Uh, good job, Mom and Dad. And, and, and they had another kid. We, they had several kids, but one of them we particularly know is named James. James writes this book of the Bible about his big brother. And then if you flip over several books, you'll run into a book right before the book of Revelation called Jude. Jude is also one of their brothers. So let's get this straight. Mom and dad has Jesus, who the whole book's about. They got two other boys that write books in the Bible. If that was you, you'd put that on social media. You'd be putting their pictures all over social media and be bragging on your children. <laughs> you know I'm telling the truth. Here's an incredible family. And for those of you that are parents, we celebrate Father's Day today. Here's what makes a great family. Number one. You need to have Jesus in your family. If you want to have a great family, the first thing is you need Jesus in it. Second thing is that every member of the family needs to be busy loving Jesus and telling other people how to love Jesus. And the third thing is this. You need parents, and I know a lot of you are single parents or have single parent of homes. You need the parents that are raising you to be raising you like God raises them. To have the mind of God. Amen? Parents lead the family and love the children. James and his brother Jude and their big brother Jesus never made it to seminary. They didn't make it to Bible college. There's nothing wrong with those things. I have a degree myself. I've attended classes. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly taking classes from seminary. I'm not opposed to it, but here's the key. You don't need a certificate from a Bible college to change the world. Godly parents change the world because they raise their children in the love and fear and admonition of the Lord, and those children change their environment. So it doesn't matter if you can't give your children money because Mary and Joseph didn't have money, but you can give your children Jesus, and Jesus will change their life forever. Amen. Go ahead. That's, that's all right. 
So we're going to back up a few scriptures this morning and go back to James chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 13. I'm going to introduce you this morning to our next family member who's in our church family photo, and his name is Painful. James chapter 5 and verse 13 asks the question, Is anyone among you suffering? So he says, who's suffering? Who in the house and the family of God is suffering? And if you're suffering in some way, that's you. And here's his prescription. Let him pray. Let him pray. Sounds pretty simple, right? The point is, we all need to pray. But when you suffer, you need to pray more. See, there's a tendency in the world today that when there's more suffering... We, we start complaining more, or we start self-medicating more, or we start fighting more. But instead of all of that, there needs to be more prayer. If you are suffering, you need to pick up your prayer life. I have done a lot of teaching through the years about prayer. Believe you me, if you've been with us for a long time, you know that I have taken entire summers and taught nothing but prayer. I have read a ton of books about prayer. And honestly, as I have matured in my faith, my attitude about prayer has changed. Let me, let me help you. Uh, in my early days of my Christian walk, I was really focused on sounding religious. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? When I prayed, I thought God heard me in King James. My fathereth who arteth in heaveneth, hallowed be thy nameth, and blessed my familyeth, and all my uprisings and my undergirdings, and God uh, of heaven and majesty and glory on high, uh, revealeth thyself to me, and I thought that I had to sound like I read in the Scripture. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? I, just, I, I felt like I had to sound spiritual. So I wanted to quote a lot of Scripture. You know, I wanted to remind God what He said in case He forgot. So, so I'd start putting all these Scriptures in. It, it, it was, as if, I, it was that, as if I was trying to write my own uh, text for the next, uh, the, the next book that was going to be published in the Holy Bible. And then I switched from that as I got a little more mature, and I started focusing on the formula of prayer. Now, I've got an entire series of teachings that I do on how to pray. And one of the things that I used to get so caught up in was making sure that I was covering all my bases. I wanted to spend X amount of time talking to God about this. And I wanted to spend this amount of time talking to God about this. And I wanted to make sure I included all the missionaries. And I had, to, I had my list and I had to go down the formula. And, 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 all, and all of that is fine. It, it's, it's fine. But I have even came up to another level with my prayer life at this walk with God. Because now my prayer life is something that goes on all day long. My, my prayer life has become something that is sometimes formal, but more often conversational. My, my prayer life, I found out that the world will not stop so I can get alone with God and bring Him all of my needs. So I had to learn how to talk to God on the go while I'm driving. While I'm typing, while I'm trying to get from point A on Three Springs Drive to point B downtown, I've had to learn how to talk to God as if I was talking to a friend of mine. 
And, and, and I could have a conversation with the Lord, and in order for me to do that, I had to learn how to spend time talking to him right when I need him. I don't always have time to go get in my prayer closet. Those moments are important. I schedule that with God every day. However, there are times I need to talk to God unscheduled. Like, there are times in traffic I need to speak to the Lord. Because I don't understand what some of you are doing. When we're out there on the road, I'm, I'm like, cover me in the blood of Jesus right now. Because I don't understand what a lot of this is. Because I didn't learn none of this when I learned how to drive. And I don't know how you talk to God, but my life is crazy hectic. Okay? And it seems like the moment I get ready to talk to God, that's when everything else starts jumping off. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, I can schedule time alone with God, but then the phone's ringing and a dog's barking and somebody's ringing the doorbell, and I, I wonder what that noise is, and I'm trying to... And, and So everybody's trying to get a hold of me at the same time. Nobody wanted me for four hours, but I get ready to get along with God. Now I'm the most popular guy in the world. Okay, so, so uh, I like to get along with God, I like to talk to God on, on long bike rides. I go down to the trail sometimes, and I ride my bike, and I challenge myself that wherever I'm going to turn around on my bicycle, I, I, I'll talk to God all the way to my turnaround spot about all the things I'm thankful for. So I try to challenge myself to not ask for a thing, but just pour out my heart and tell him how grateful I am for all the things that he does for me. And then on my way back to, to the truck, I'll tell God what I need. I'll tell God what I'm, uh, what I'm burdened about and stuff weighing me down. And then, and then, there are times when I just need to talk to God right now. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about a relationship with the Lord that is not as formal as that. It's not in quiet solitude. It's when you are literally have this kind of relationship with the Lord. Lord, I'm thankful that you gave us this house, but you know now that the roof is starting to leak. Joey, get down off that table before I have to come in there. Now, Lord, like I was saying, if you... Anybody have that kind of talk with the Lord? Yeah. So, 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 if you got little kids, you know you got to break your prayers apart sometimes between battle sessions. So uh, I, stopped, I stopped trying to focus on the details of my prayer, and instead I started getting to know who God was. Because here's what I have decided. If God is my Father, I should be able to talk to Him like my Father. And if I will talk to him as my father, I should expect for him to talk back to me. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to your father and listening to what he has to say. In the Old Testament, 15 times God is referred to as father. But it's always as a national plea, never an individual plea. And it's impersonal. But everything changes in our understanding of who God is and our prayer life when Jesus Christ steps foot on planet earth. Through the Gospels, he calls his father, Father, 165 times. If Jesus is telling us something 165 times, it must be pretty important. So when Jesus tells us that he is our Father, here's how he says, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. He said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our our, uh, our Father. When you pray, pray like that. Before you ever start asking for a thing, thanking Him for a thing, before you ever recognize your relationship. I wish I had a witness in this church. Recognize who He is. Because when you think of Him as your Father, it will change the way you pray. 
Because the point is this. If you want to learn how to pray, don't look at religious people. Look at a father who loves his children. If you want to learn how to pray, look at a father who adores his children and how those kids act with their dad. Yeah. Oh, it's all right. I know somebody's like, eh. Because fathers have been diminished in this world. But if you find a father who loves his children and watch how those kids act with him, because that's the way you should be acting with your father. Find a father who is tough for his children and tender with them. Because that's the father's vision and his heart for you. Find a father who protects his children and blesses his children. That's absolutely the heart of God. Because once a kid knows that their dad loves them, hello, and is always there for them when they need him, they will start asking him for things. And it never stops. <laughs> Two of mine are in their 20s, and we're still going. And then they get married, and then they, they tell their spouse, hey, my dad's a loving dad and a caring dad, and he's always there for us. So, so now not only do they ask, they bring along a hitchhiker that starts asking for stuff too, and you become their dad. And now I'm Rachel's dad. And, and now I treat her and act like with her and, and bless her the same way I do my own children. And because when you're a loving dad and you bless your children, and watch how your children act back with that. That's the way God wants us to act with him. We don't have to be formal. Fathereth, Godeth in heaven. He doesn't have to do all that. You can just say, hey, Abba, Father. I need you. Listen, when your car starts sliding on the ice, you don't have time to have a seven-day fast and prayer session. You can't get 40 of your best prayer partners to lay hands on you. you got to be able to say, Jesus, and know that Jesus will show up. Amen. So God's your Father. His heart for you is a Father's heart. He cares about you. He'll be tough for you and tender with you. He'll protect you and he'll bless you. And prayer is simply talking to him and then listening to him. And James says when you're suffering, that is a great time to start praying. And listening. Talking to your father about where it hurts. Everybody in here has had hard-headed children. I know you've had hard-headed children because I know their parents. And you know how aggravating it is for a kid to be hurting and you tell them how to fix it and then find them doing the thing you told them not to do that's just going to make it hurt more? Oh, you didn't take care of that. You didn't keep Band-Aids on it. You ever tried to keep a Band-Aid on a six-year-old boy? I, I mean, you might as well tie him to a, a bed. I mean, there's, they're going to rip it out. They're going to forget about it. Kids forget to brush their teeth. They forget to do all the things that's going to keep them healthy. We do the same thing. God tells us to do things and tells us how to get past our suffering, and we don't always listen. Somebody say amen. But here's the concept that I want to talk about, and then we're going to move on. Prayer transfers burdens that you can't carry to a God who can Now, now may, maybe I'm talking in the wrong crowd. Maybe there's only, uh, maybe it's just me. But there are things in my life that 
I get so weary with and I suffer with to the point where I don't think I can carry one more thing. I'm not as tough as I make myself out to be sometimes. And there are times with me that I've just run out of natural energy. And I can't handle one more burden. And Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. I'll put my yoke on you, which is easy. My burden is light. What he's saying is, I will transfer what's killing you onto me. I will take off of you what is burdening and making you suffer. And, and, and so what we do in prayer is uh, we, we consider it like a little kid. Ha, have you ever taken a little kid to like an amusement park where you're there a long time or a zoo or something? I can remember when our kids were little and they always insisted on doing the craziest, dumbest things like wearing the wrong shoes for the project or carrying way more stuff then you're ever going, honey, we're going to the zoo. You really don't need seven stuffed animals. We're going to the zoo. You probably shouldn't wear flats. With We're going to walk for a long time all day. You need comfortable shoes. But they would always insist on it. And then halfway through, three-quarters of the way through, they have spent all their energy, right? And they come up to Dad. Can you, can you carry this? And then that's stage one. Stage two is, will you carry me? That's what prayer is between you and your father. You're coming to him and you're saying, Father, this thing is too heavy for me to carry. Would you carry it? And what James is telling you is when you bring your suffering to Jesus, the thing that is crushing you, the thing that is causing you pain, the thing that is causing you suffering, not only, not only will he carry it, but if you insist on carrying it, he'll carry you while you deal with it. He is your father. He wants to carry you through anything that you can't get through yourself. So what I have found when I'm under a lot of stress, if I will take time to pray, not get on Facebook, not talk to somebody who's more stressed than I am. When I am stressed and suffering and burdened, if I will go to God and take my issues to Him, it is to the soul good like medicine have you ever been really dehydrated and you drank some water and you immediately felt better and you was like wow i didn't know how bad i needed that or have you been really really run down and didn't realize how run down you was until you got a good night's sleep and then you woke up from it and you said man i did not realize how bad i needed that that's what prayer does to the soul you will go to the lord and you don't know how spiritually dehydrated you really are until you take your concerns to him and then he'll give you an infusion of holy spirit anointing that will cause you to overcome everything you've been going through yeah my soul gets dehydrated I, I get too heavy in my soul. So, so that's the first family member. The next one in our photo this morning is somebody we're going to call persistent. Uh -huh. Now we're going to jump down in James chapter 5 to verse 17 because we've already covered these other scriptures. James 5 and 17 says, Elijah was a human as we are. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, 
None fell for three and a half years. Does that sound normal to anybody? Listen, listen to how he starts. He says, Elijah was a human like we are. He, he's just a normal guy. But he prayed, and heaven forgot how to reign for three and a half years. That doesn't sound normal, does it? Verse 18, then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. So, so when, a, when Elijah prayed over on Mount Carmel, fire fell from heaven. Then he prayed again, and heaven shut up and wouldn't give rain. And then he prayed again, and heaven opened up, and rain started falling everywhere. And what James is saying here is that Elijah's just like you. He's just a normal guy. And you say, well, he's doing extraordinary things. That's exactly what James wants you to learn this morning. God does extraordinary stuff through ordinary people. And what he's saying here is, if you can't handle it, pray and watch what God will do. I wish I had uh, time to dig into that this morning because there, there's so much that I could unpack with that thought. When you can't handle what you're up against, when there is an obstacle standing in your way that you know you can't overcome, he says pray and watch what God does. Because when you get to the end of you and you stop trying to fix all your problems, you'll get serious in prayer and you will watch a supernatural God that can bring down strongholds and cast out imaginations and move mountains out of your way. And the problem we have is we're too stubborn to actually take it to him because we want to fix it ourselves. So you have to decide where the end of you lives. Because I try to fix stuff way longer than I need to, and the end of me gets way out there. But God says, I won't step in till you get to the end of you. And, and this is what James is teaching us about Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man like you and me, a normal guy. But when he prayed... Stuff happened. Now, if you keep reading your Bible, you'll find out that Elijah took a spiritual son. He was a spiritual father, not an actual father, but a spiritual father. He took a spiritual son named Elisha, and he probably taught him how to pray. And if you keep reading your Bible, you'll find out that Elisha did more than Elijah did in his ministries. And it was because of the impact the impartation that Elijah made in Elisha's life. And if you keep reading over in the second chapter of uh, Second Kings chapter 13, you'll read a story about this man called Elisha. The king of Israel was in bad shape. He'd been defeated. The enemies were coming against him, and he didn't think he was going to make it. The problem is Elisha, who had always given them the visions they needed, thus saith the Lord, Elisha's about to die. So the king goes to see Elisha on his deathbed. Elisha does one of the strangest things you're ever going to hear a man of God say to do. He didn't pray over him. He didn't anoint him with oil. He didn't kick him in the shin. He didn't tell him to spin around seven times and say uh, Hail Marys. He, he didn't do anything that sounds spiritual at all. Here's what he said. He said, take that bow and arrow, aim it out of the east window, and shoot an arrow. So the king did it. And he shot an arrow and he says, that is your deliverance over your enemies from the Lord. I'm not pretending to understand 
what Elisha was thinking? I'm just taking him at his word. He said, you shot an arrow, God's going to deliver you over your enemies. He said, take the arrows that remain and strike the ground. Say strike the ground. He said, take the arrows that you got left and hit the ground. And the king did that too. He did it once. He did it twice. He did it three times. And he stopped. And the man of God got mad at him. Now, all the instruction he gave him was strike the ground. Was he obedient? Yes, he struck the ground. As a matter of fact, he went above where a lot of us would. Because some of us would have went, I don't understand what I, I don't understand what, I don't, I don't know how this is helping. Arrows are supposed to do this. I, I don't, this preacher has lost his mind. I don't understand why he's asking me to, he did it three times. Was he obedient to the word? Yes. And yet the man of God got upset with him and asked him this question that I want to ask you. Why'd you stop? Why did you stop? Why well, did it more than you'd sit? The Bible just tells you to pray. The Bible just says that when you go to the Lord, expect Him to do things. The Bible just says that when you are burdened, take your burdens to the Lord. It doesn't tell you how long you have to do it. So let me introduce you to our new family member, Persistent. Because when you get persistent in prayer, you realize that I can't quit until I see what it is that I've been praying for. Because too many of us have the same attitude that this king had. I don't understand why. I did it once. Why didn't it happen? I went up to the altar when the preacher opened the altar. How come I'm still sick? How come my babies are still lost? How come my family's still in distress? How come I'm still out of work? I, I did it. Bible says pray. I, I, I prayed. Look at your neighbor. Look him right in the eye. Look your neighbor right in the eye and ask him, why'd you stop? Yeah, why did you? Can, can you help me preach? Can, can you help me preach this morning? Because can, can, hey, why did you stop? Why, why did you stop? Why, why did you? Some, matter of fact, some of y'all might want to just get that prophetic uh, finger pointed right in their face and tell them, why, why, why'd you stop? See, why'd you stop believing? Why did you stop having faith? Why did you stop putting one foot in front of the other? I, I was listening, uh, as I was preparing for this message some months ago, I was listening to an interview with a professional race car driver who on the straightaways... His car does 180 miles per hour, inches from the wall. When he hits the curve, he applies the brakes, and the car goes from 180 to 50. He was out there on a test track, and they were following him with a GoPro camera. And when they got him out of the car, I was expecting him to look like I would after that experience. And he was calm as a cucumber. And so they started interviewing him and says, what's going on in your mind? What's going through your, your mind when you're going that fast? He said, there's two things that you need to understand about a professional race car driver that sets us apart from a regular driver. The first thing is this. I know I'm in control of that vehicle. I have to believe that I'm in total control of what is under me. The second thing is, I know the capability of the car. Most people don't push the limits because they don't understand the capability of what they have. 
And by the way, you don't need to do that. I've seen some of you drive. You are fast enough already. You don't want me to be testing the limits of that Fiesta no more. Don't do it. Cindy, don't you do it. Don't you, you, you fast enough already. Don't be taking this pastor said, I can do it. No, I did not. It's not test track out there. He said, most people don't understand the capability of what they have, so they never push the limits. I wonder if there's some people in the family of God that have never gotten persistent in prayer because we don't understand the capability of the prayer life that we're supposed to have. I wonder if, if there's people that have fallen short of their blessing and their breakthrough and their miracle because we've never been persistent enough to keep pushing through because we don't understand what's under us. And what is under us is a place where heaven comes down and takes care of our problems. Could it be that we are not pushing our prayer life past the limits because I don't know what horsepower I really have. Could there be more to this prayer life than what I have learned so far? Is there more capability in my prayer life than I've ever tapped into? I wonder. I wonder if some of us ought to just put our foot on the gas of our prayer life. Maybe some of us need to just stop praying it safe. Some of us have not been reckless with our prayer life in a long time. And I think God's trying to get a more, little more velocity out of your prayer life. Amen? Elisha said this, take those arrows and hit the ground. And the image that you and I have of that is this. How you're acting in this room is going to play out on the battlefield. Which means how I pray is the result I'm going to see. If I pray little, I'll see little result. If I pray much, I can expect much to happen. And I believe that that's a picture of what prayer life is supposed to be like. And Elisha got frustrated with the king because he stopped. He said, you're only going to push the enemy back a little bit. You're never going to completely destroy them because you didn't push the limits. Can I encourage some people this morning to push the limits? to st stop stopping, to stop quitting. There's more to this thing than you've seen so far. And if you don't believe that you've got better coming than what you've already experienced, I don't even know why you serve this man, Jesus, because I didn't serve him to suffer. The Bible says he came to give me life and so that I could have it more abundantly. So I'm not just supposed to take everything life gives at me and not give it pushback because prayer is my pushback. Prayer is me entering the battle scene saying, I'm not here in my own strength. You see that giant in front of me? David said, I'm not fighting him. I would be ridiculously stupid to fight him. He's nine and a half feet tall. He could pick me up and crush my bones with one hand. I'm not fighting him. He's fighting me because the one who is behind me is greater than the one who is in front of me. That's what prayer does. It makes you realize what's inside of you, the Holy Spirit and the power that resides in you. But you have to know who your father is. Sadly, in the nation that we live in today, there's a great absence of fathers. And there's a lot of people who grow up without, even if the father's in the home, he's not emotionally connected. He's absent emotionally. And that causes what we call daddy issues. Hello? It's actually called an orphan mindset. But here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. 
You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But we did receive the spirit of adoption. So even if you didn't have an earthly father that provided for you, you have been adopted by Abba Father. And he calls you, he calls you his own. Let's take that one step further because Psalms chapter 2 verse 7 says this. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Did you read that? It said you have become my son. Now I know we're living in a politically correct environment where we're not supposed to differentiate between sons and daughters. Females can do everything that a man can do. And I know it's not politically correct, so let me, let me calm that storm in you before you write me nasty emails this week. When you see that scripture and it says you are my son, I don't want you to think of that as gender. You have to think of that as positionally. You're not called his son because you have his blood in your veins. You are called his son and his daughter because of the position that he has set you in. He has made you his son and daughter. So I need you to understand that your position in the kingdom is that you are now fit for the inheritance of your father. And your father is a king. So, when I was a little boy, I had rules. Kids don't like rules. You know, I, I didn't like rules either. But in my day, we had repercussions for our rules. Like, I remember my mother showed up at my second grade open house. I hated open house. If there was one day in my life that I, I mean, I didn't like going to the dentist, but I would rather go to the dentist than have my mama come to open house. Because I had already wore out my teachers by open house, and they were going to tell my mom that I was going to go home and I was going to get beat. And I hated open house. I would, I would lose the letters. Wouldn't tell my mama when open house was. <laughs> I can remember my second grade teacher, Miss Bookie. And my mother walked up to her and said, my name's Jean Mitchum. And I could see Miss Bookie's countenance change. She was getting ready to let my mom have an earful about this child she was raising. And before she could even say a word about me, my mother said, there's going to come a time real soon when you're going to feel the need to spank him. Just go ahead. I only ask that you let me know because he's going to get another one when he gets home. Because if he embarrasses me here. Did anybody grow up in a house like I grew up in? If he does something here that embarrasses me, you can take care of it, but you ain't going to touch what I'm about to do. Because my, my mom and dad was all about not embarrassing them when I went somewhere. So when I went to a friend's house, there was one thing. There was a lot of things I wasn't allowed to do. But for sure, one thing. Don't you ever go over and ask them for food? Don't you go over and embarrass us and ask. Because I guess my mom didn't want to think that I, you know, I didn't eat at home. My mom didn't feed me. So I, don't, you, don't you go over there and ask for food. So when I would go over to a friend's house, I didn't even go in the kitchen. Like, I'd go in any other room in the house that was allowed, wasn't off limits, but I wouldn't go in the kitchen because I didn't want to accidentally, like, pick up an apple or something. So I did not want to get beat when I got home. But you notice what I, you know what I noticed when I was at my friend's house? My friend would go in the kitchen, swing open the refrigerator, look inside of it, look back and say, what do y'all want? I can make a sandwich. We got some cold pizza. 
You want some cereal? And do you know why he had a comfort level with that refrigerator that I did not? Because that was his house. His mom and dad not only had given him a house, but put a refrigerator stock full of stuff in it, and he knew he didn't have to ask his mom and dad if he could get inside of it because it was his provided to him by his parents. And I want somebody to know in here that heaven's got a fridge with your name on it. And inside of that thing is healing and breakthrough and miracle, and you've got all the things that you need to have a healthy, wise, productive, happy life down here, but some of us have never realized that our daddy is a good provider and our father wants you to feel blessed and he wants you to walk in those blessings. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven for us to feel like our father provides for us. Can you give the Lord a hand clap over that? See, when you know it's your parents and your house, you got a boldness. You'll come in there and just fling open the refrigerator. Hannah don't ask me if she can get in there. She just gets in there, makes a mess and leaves the mess. She don't ask permission because we understand our parents have given us something and we have been provided by him. So, so we act like a child sometimes in our prayer life that don't live in our father's house. Sometimes our biggest issue with our father is that we act like some trespasser who don't belong to be there, an orphan. And your father wants you to know he's provided for you. We say prayers like this. Now, I'm going to get on you. Is that all right? Some of y'all don't know me, but I like getting on you. We pray prayers like this. Lord, bless me. When Elisha told that king to shoot an arrow... You know how dangerous it would have been for him to just say, shoot an arrow? He could have just shot Elisha. He could have shot it through the door. He could have shot it into the bed. He gave him a specific direction. He said, go out the east window, aim your arrow, and let it go. Vague prayers never hit their target. So when you pray to God and you say, God bless me, and then you look around and you're saying, I didn't get my blessing." I can hear heaven asking you back, where exactly would you like? Would you like the prayer in the city or in the field? Would you like the blessing when you got to rise up or when you lay down? Would you like your blessing in your health or in your marriage? I, got, I need a little direction here. So vague prayers that are not specific-minded and aimed aren't going anywhere. So the last thing is this. you got to be persistent. And the last one, we're going to close this chapter and this book with the last two verses, verse 19 and 20. And we're going to meet our last family member, and his name is Pester. Now, some of y'all think y'all married Pester. I think my wife believes, she's not out here yet and can't hear me because she's got them things in her ears and she can't hear what I'm preaching. So I can talk about her, and as long as y'all don't tell her, she won't even know that I'm talking about her. But my wife thinks I pester her because I'm always what she calls aggravating. I call it flirting. And she says, well, you need to get better at it. And I said, maybe you just need a better sense of humor. What is it? What is it? What is a pester? It's somebody that agitates, right? Somebody that won't leave you alone. 
right? Somebody that's just always, always poking and prodding. And, and I'm sweet as sugar, ain't I, Rachel? I'm not a pest at all. See, this is my, this is my daughter-in-law who's carrying my grandbaby. <laughs> and she knows I'm just sweet. Yeah, see, I'm just sweet. My wife thinks I'm a pester. But can I tell you, maybe I am. And that's all right because James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 tells us we should all be pesters. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, that's a pester. That's somebody who notices that somebody had wandered and they went and got them. If they bring them back, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a epidemic of wandering going on. People have wandered. Notice what he said. He said, if any have wandered from the truth. There's still people going to church, but they don't always wander to the truth. We're living in a culture that don't like the truth. It makes it unsafe for those of us that still believe God has a standard for us to live by. A lot of preachers have given in to the pressure. And they stand up and tell congregations that it's okay for you to live however, however you feel. You do you. And they just go with the flow. And they don't want to cause any waves. But this book says that when people start wandering from the truth, it's not a good place. We have, a, we have an ordination from heaven for us to go and get back the ones who wandered from the truth. Because we're not supposed to just give up on each other. But we're also not supposed to give in to each other. So when we see people that are wandering from the truth, the Bible says we're supposed to go get them. Now you're not going to bring them all back. I thought I might get an amen to somebody that's tried. You're not going to get them all back, but you did your part. And the Bible says that if you do bring them back, you've restored them back to their father's house. Which leads me to my final story that I'm going to share with you this morning. And you call it the prodigal son over in Luke's gospel. Here's a very good father who has a very bad child. This son tells his father, I want my inheritance. You say, what's so bad about that? Because what he was basically saying was, I want now what I'm only supposed to have once you die. So I would rather have it than you. I wish you were dead. Your money is more valuable to me than you are. And the father gives him the money. And he runs out and starts blowing it. He does everything we do. He's ordering stuff on Amazon. Them smiling boxes are showing up on his porch. He's sleeping in beds he don't belong in. He's partying in bars. He's doing all the stuff and all the things that money often leads to. And then he ran out of daddy's money. And he thought about going home to his father's house. But he said, I'm not worthy to be a son. If daddy would just let me work for him, he could treat me like a servant. 
but at least I'll be back home. Because I've done too much against my dad for him to ever call me Sonny. And the Bible says he was on his way home. He, he's walking home. He's going back to his father's house. And in his mind, he's having this conversation about, I'm not worthy. He's working out this, have you ever scripted a dialogue before you got there? He, he's, he's laying the plan out for, for his uh, the conversation. He, he wants to tell his dad, you don't have to take me back as a son. I know I'm not worthy to be a son. I, I just want you to take me back because I can't keep sleeping outside. I've, I've blown it. I've made mistakes. I'm sorry. And you don't have to treat me like a son, but will you just treat me like a servant? And the Bible says that the father must have been looking for him. Pastor. He must have been standing in the window waiting. He didn't chase him. But he was looking the whole time, expecting him to come back. And the Bible says when the son was walking, the father came running. Friend, you might walk to God, but God runs to you. And the Bible says that when he got there, he met him before he ever reached the house. He threw his arms around. He said, clean him up. Dad, I need to tell you something. Shh. Dad, I, I'm unqualified. Shh. D Dad, I got this speech I prepared. Shh. Go get a ring of sonship. Go get a robe of family man and put it on my son. My son who was gone has came back. Why did the father run? Why do you not wait for the son to get back in the house? Because some of us, some of us, they know where I'm at. They left. Why did the father run? Why? Because Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 says, Suppose a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother even though they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders as they hold court at the town gate. The parents must say to the elders, this son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious and refuses to obey. He is a glutton and a drunk. What did that boy do? He became a glutton and a drunk. Verse 21, then all the men of this town must stone him to death. In this way you will purge evil from among you and all Israel who will hear about it will be afraid. Why did the father run? Because this is the active current ruling law. This is why the Pharisees thought it was scandalous to tell this story. Because this was the law in that day. This was what you were supposed to do to a rebellious son, to a backslidden son, to a son who wouldn't obey, to a drunkard, to somebody who had lost their way. You were supposed to stone them to death. Why did the father run? Because before the religious spirit could jump on that boy and make him feel unqualified, the father ran out to show him, you still belong to me because the religious spirit would have told him you're just a slave you might get back to your daddy's house but he'll never treat you the same but come home and see how your father shows you love come back home no matter what you've done 
No matter how far you ran, no matter how many pig pens you have slept in, just come back home and see how your heavenly Father loves you. Would you stand all over this building with me this morning? I don't know your story. I don't even know most of you intimately enough to say what your relationship is with the Lord. But I know what His thoughts are towards you. Before you ever breathed your first breath, He loved you. Commissioned His Son to die for you. To pay the penalty for you. Before you ever did one good thing. Just come home and see how much the Father loves you. Religious spirits will try to intercept you and tell you you've gone too far and done too much, broke too many rules, and now all you can ever hope to be is a slave or a servant. But he said, I've called you my son. Just come back to the Father's house and you'll see how much he loves you. Father, all over this room are sons and daughters and sons and daughters in the making. God, we receive your word this morning. Even through the eyes of religion that would tell us that we're never good enough, we know that we'll never be good enough, but God, you have made us to be righteous because of Christ and what he has done for us. You've told us you love us. you told us that your house is full of glory and that we can be there with you. God, somebody needs to come home this morning. They need to feel your love. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now to let somebody feel what they have not felt in a long time, the loving embrace of their Heavenly Father. On this Father's Day, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to wrap your arms around somebody that feels fatherless and feels like they're a, an orphan and they don't have a home. I want the Father right now, Holy Spirit, embrace them and tell them everything is going to be okay. Welcome home. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do and bring that sweet peace and comfort to those that have been running and need to come back home. Now with every eye closed and every head bowed, if that's you in this room, if you've been running and you know you need to come back to the Father's house, would you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Hands all over the building. Thank you for those. Thank you for those hands. Father, right now, I'm commissioning you to please open the hearts for every person that's hand was raised, every person that needs you, every person that sees their need for you and recognizes their need for you, that you would introduce yourself to them afresh and anew right now in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And I want every person in here, whether you're a believer or you just raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for introducing me to my Father. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life 
and help me dwell in my Father's house forever and ever. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, you believe it in your heart, will you give the Lord a hand clap? Because you've got a good future. Your Father loves you. I've done a lot of things wrong, but God, I'm sorry. I repent. I want to come back home. God's not going to reject you. He's not going to put his arm. He's going to say, welcome home. He loves you. He lo That's all this book was teaching us. James was teaching us from the first simple to the last benediction. He was teaching us, my older brother Jesus, he did a lot of stuff for you that you was never going to be able to do for yourself, all because he was on a mission to teach you how much your father loves you. Now, if you prayed that prayer this morning for the very first time, if you lifted your hand, there are cards out here, and we would love for you to fill that card out, put your name on it. We're not going to bombard you. We, will, we would like to know if you like some information so one of our staff members or one of our prayer partners could be in touch with you and help walk you through this journey to help you take the next couple of steps. So there's a card up there. You can fill it out, put your name, your, your uh, email, your phone number, whatever you're comfortable giving us, and drop it in the box. We would love to have some communication with you because we want to show you what the next steps are along the journey of life. Can we give the people that raised their hands this morning a hand clap of celebration in here? Hallelujah. Thank you. So I've got my ushers up here. You all may be seated, except the fathers, except the fathers. Because I want the fathers to come up front, if we could. And we're going we're gonna to present to you a little token of our appreciation. And I'd just like to see all of our fathers out here. Because I want to bless them. Amen. Amen. 